Hi, I'm Valerie Moisel. Over 20 years ago, I co-founded my company with a creative spark, an entrepreneurial spirit, and a fearless attitude. At the time, I didn't quite know what I was doing, but by jumping right in, not being afraid to make mistakes, and surrounding myself with people I could learn from, I had no choice but to figure it out. Well, I'm ready to be fearless again. I've long dreamed of sharing a space where I can interview successful women and hear them talk from their hearts about how they found their way. What I'm learning is it's not such a linear path. In fact, it's different for everyone, but there is a common thread. We all have what I call the four S's, the initial spark, the snag which trips you up, the shift that helps you find your way to the final S, success. No, not always in that order, and yes, sometimes the steps repeat. Before each interview, I thought it would be insightful to not only bring my perspective as a Gen Xer, but to have a quick chat with a rising millennial who is on her own unique path to greatness. My hope is that she will one day pass the torch and mentor others. Together, we will learn from each other and be inspired. These are women who rule. This is She Dynasty. I'd like to introduce everyone to Gianna Corvino as today's guest host. Gianna is currently a sophomore at Tulane University, and she's majoring in communications. And she's actually my summer intern. So we're really excited to have you here today, Gianna. Thank you. I'm really excited. So today we are going to be speaking with Stephanie Klasky Gamer, and she is a woman who is really leading the efforts in Los Angeles to end homelessness. She's kind of taken on a huge, huge endeavor. Tell me why it was important for you to be here today and talk to her. Well, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I've been very active in local community service, whether it's feeding the homeless with my dad or doing Meals on Wheels. I've always wanted to take part in helping the community, and I've even gone abroad with my dad, helping children in Costa Rica. So I'm very interested in social justice, and I'd love to learn about Stephanie's story. Great. Well, we're looking forward to having her here. So I'd like to introduce Stephanie Klasky Gamer, president and CEO of one of Los Angeles's greatest forces for change, LA Family Housing. Stephanie is spearheading solutions and transitioning thousands of individuals out of homelessness and poverty by managing an agency with approximately 250 employees, 500 donors, 1,000 volunteers, and more than 7,000 program participants. With over 25 years of experience in social and economic justice work, we're lucky to get an inside look into her journey. Stephanie is truly a woman who rules. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for being here today. Thanks so much for having me, Valerie. We are really happy and excited to have you. This is another subject that I don't know very much about, and I'm kind of embarrassed again to say that because I'm born and raised in Los Angeles, and I feel like I should have a bigger awareness. You know, as I was kind of thinking about the kinds of things I wanted to ask you, and I talked to some of my friends and family, I realized, wow, I'm not the only person that really doesn't know a lot about the homeless issue in Los Angeles. And I had so many questions that I wasn't even sure if some of them were appropriate to ask. So I hope today I can get some answers, and I hope I ask questions that make sense. You can ask any questions. Great. 
One of the things that I found really interesting was that your four S's were kind of a little bit out of order. They weren't in the traditional sense. And so I really kind of like that because I think that, you know, for some people, there's this like very steady way that you kind of get to success. But it sounds like for you, things kind of went in an interesting order. So before we start, I want to hear a little bit about you as a child. Where are you from? I grew up here in Los Angeles. I grew up in the San Fernando Valley in Northridge. So you're born and raised here. I'm born and raised here. My childhood was great, seemingly very typical. I'm one of three siblings. I'm the youngest. My parents are both professionals, and we grew up in a house that emphasized family, social action, and education. And so all of those components shaped me, and I think continue in my life today. And did your parents work in social justice? Well, my father is a physician and my mom's an educator. So I wouldn't say they were paid in social justice in terms of employment, but I would say it was definitely part of my upbringing, whether it was the Russian Refusenik movement in the 70s to welcoming Ethiopian refugees to addressing homelessness, which we did in the early 80s through our synagogue. So you were really inspired by them at a, at a young age. Continue to be inspired by them. I love to hear that. Tell us about your kind of school life. Were you a good student? Yeah, I think I always was a good student. And the nice part about where I went to school is I was always surrounded by smart people and smart students who cared. Where did you go to college? I graduated from the University of Michigan. What was your first job out of college? After college, I actually went to Israel for a year to study, and I cleaned houses in order to be there. You know, so many women who I interview and I ask them what their first jobs are, I ask purposely just because I think people think that the answer is going to be very different than what it is. And I think there's a lot of pressure now on young you know, college students who are graduating to figure out what their career is the second they graduate. And it seems like people more from our generation were more open to trying you know, a million things that they didn't want to do until they figured out exactly what it is that they did want to do. Having two kids in college now, I have a third who's still in high school. One of my kids in college now, I think, feels he's supposed to know it now. Yeah, there's a lot of pressure. I think that, you know, the workplace has gotten very competitive. Definitely the landscape has changed. So you moved to Israel. What came next? What came next is I moved to Wisconsin. My undergraduate degree is in art history, and I had in my mind that I wanted to work in the arts. I just got two jobs to pay you know, rent. One was in public arts with the state and the other was with a in a bookstore. And I spent my nights in the bookstore and I would read all these books on architecture and the built environment and ultimately decided to change course for graduate school. And I applied to UCLA because there was an interest in the built environment and that you build communities. So the built environment, learning about that was, it, it kind of shifted your whole direction and what you thought you wanted to do and be. I really learned about the built environment in undergrad, my last semester taking a beginning architecture class. Then when I was at UCLA, I met these people who I call housers, people in the urban planning field who were focused on affordable housing development. That wasn't even a concept I knew. and. I felt that what they were doing was a more physical manifestation of what I was thinking about in terms of who decided what housing got built where and what dollars got used to build that housing defined everything about it, including who would live there. And when I started to realize who needed to live in this housing, that's what really excited me, sparked my interest, and I also saw that I liked Excel spreadsheets. (laughs) (laughs) Fantastic. Okay, so... Now you're in grad school. 
and you have this new inspiration, and what happens next? So my husband and I were both in graduate school at the same time. We graduated. We opened up the map and said, all right, given the type of work that we both want to do, we can't afford to live in Los Angeles. Let's see where we can live. And he's from Detroit, and I'm from L.A. We knew we weren't living in those two cities, and we chose Atlanta, Georgia. And one of the things that really excited me about moving to Atlanta is that the Olympics were going to be coming to Atlanta in a couple of years, which meant there'd probably be a lot of federal money coming into this city. So we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and I got my first job there in my career, building permanently affordable rental housing. And at that time, it was for chronically homeless adults with mental illness. So the first job you got in this area had to do with homelessness? Coincidentally, yes, because that was not my focus. It just happened to be that that organization dealt with homelessness. I cared about housing. I cared about building up communities, but I didn't really have a good sense of homelessness until I did that work in Atlanta. And how long did you work there? We were there for about four and a half years. And what were you able to accomplish while you were there? I would say one of my biggest accomplishments, not just with Project Interconnections, that was the name of the organization where I worked, but it was understanding myself as a professional. And my husband and I got married pretty young, and I remember having this revelation about six months into my work that, oh my gosh, maybe we got married too young because I'm just learning about myself now. I'm learning what I love. I'm learning that I want to stay at work late. I'm learning that, you know, how I'm going to balance things. But then probably my biggest accomplishment just had to do with meeting our residents and understanding that I might have been responsible for building the home that they lived in, building an apartment building. But the aha moment of I was building it for Tom. I was building it for Emily. I was building it for the people who live there. So you started making really personal connections with people and started to feel a sense of accomplishment based on what you were doing for them individually. Yep. That's so interesting. And changing what we did because I saw what they needed and I heard what they needed and I lived it with them. Okay, and then? And then when we came back to Los Angeles, I had what I call my transition job. I was a lender for about a year in the affordable housing industry. So still still related? Totally related, Okay. but I realized that I loved real estate development and I would be a better developer if I sat on the other side of the table and underwrote deals. Well, it probably really um, made you very well-rounded that you got yes. to see that perspective and the other side and what you do today. Totally, and, I, so and I think that that's a key thing for anyone as they're building their career is just experience all the angles of your work, and you'll figure out where the right place to fit in. I think it's a really important lesson for people to hear that as you're trying to figure out where you want to go, even if you can't get the exact job that you want to start, it's okay to have kind of the sister or the cousin job to it, because when you get to it, it's going to make you stronger at what you do. So I think that's a really important lesson. So tell us about one of your earlier snags in your career. After about 13 years in the affordable housing industry, both in Atlanta and back in Los Angeles, I felt I needed to leave that industry. There was incredible pressure where I was working. I wanted a break from it, and I spent about six months looking for what my next place would be. I wanted to still make an impact and build up communities. I knew I had a geek brain for finance, and I landed at an organization that I really respect, but it was a wrong fit. I would say that was a big snag, but it presented an incredible opportunity because it was from that organization that I got 
to be at LA Family Housing. Did you get fired? Did you quit? I strategically wrote myself out of a job. Okay. I realized very early on, and to the executive director's credit, he saw very early on that it was a it was a mismatch. And probably after two weeks there, he told me that, and he suggested I should cut my losses and leave. And I looked at him and I said, well, unless you're firing me, I'm gonna convince you and myself why I should stay. Because that's kind of scary for somebody to say after you sort of, in my mind, kind of left my career in affordable housing development to try something new. But you were sure this wasn't for you? I was sure it wasn't for me, but I didn't leave for another nine months. Okay. So your next job from that was? My very best job I've ever had, where I am now, which is president and CEO of LA Family Housing. LA Family Housing is a 35-year-old nonprofit in Los Angeles that has always worked to end homelessness in people's lives by providing affordable housing, enriched with supportive services. It was really meant to be, for lots of reasons. Tell us one of your biggest snags that has happened to you at work, a time where you were really defeated. Probably an unexpected staffing transition that I wasn't prepared for. And it was really one of those moments where you want to crawl under the pillows and not come out for a few days. So did somebody leave or you had to let them go or? Somebody proposed to leave. Um, And it was somebody who was vital to the organization? Absolutely. That's happened to me before. It's devastating. It was until I just embraced it. Who is this organization? And who will we be without this particular employee? And I just charged forward, defining nothing is about one person. It is about the strength of the whole organization. And once you step back and say, huh, I'm going to do what's right for the whole organization with or without that person. And she stayed. Oh, she stayed. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's um, an important lesson as well. The second your organization becomes defined by one person, it sometimes becomes a little bit dangerous. And so it sounds like you um, kind of reshifted things to be more on that path. So Stephanie, you're also a mom of three children. Tell us what being a parent has taught you, and um, do you take any of those lessons to work with you? So that's a great question. My youngest of three had a great birthing experience because she was born in our car. Wow, you only see that on television. (laughs) We made it only a mile from the house on the way to the hospital, and I told my husband, we're not going to make it, pull over. And he pulled over into a Chevron gas station and got out of the car, came around, opened the door, and caught her. Her delivery kind of made me feel like a warrior. And that, hell, if I could do that, I could do anything. And so if I'm really ever feeling challenged, I just close my eyes. I'm like, you delivered her in the car. And you could do this, whether it's a budget whether it might be terminating employment with somebody, whether it is figuring out you know, a challenging building issue as we construct a new building, I could do anything. I love to hear that. Okay, so now I'm gonna ask you some questions that I think um, a lot of people wanna know, and then we'll get into some detail. Let's start off by talking about how many homeless people are there in Los Angeles? The numbers were just released for the January 2018 count, and there are 53,198 people experiencing homelessness in the county, and 31,516 in the city. Those are really specific numbers, and we just have to remember that that's a point-in-time count. It's just a snapshot. So are numbers um, going down? Are they up? Where well, are for we? the first time in four years, 
we're seeing a decrease. And yes, I hope that LA Family Housing, as a leader in our region, had something to do with that. So you have over 250 employees, is that right? We're about 250. So what is your leadership style? How would somebody describe you? I think I am a nurturing collaborator. I recognize I don't lead the organization myself. I've got a phenomenal team, and I need to dedicate more time to constantly lifting them up because they lift up the organization. I just get the opportunity to brag about it. Yeah, I feel the same way. I mean, we're only as good as our team, right? Absolutely. Stephanie, how large was the organization when you first started? When I joined in 2007, we were about 65 employees and about a $6 million annual operating budget. Today, as you know, we're larger than 225 employees, and our operating budget is $41 million. And what was your first job there? I came in as the president and CEO. And so you have single-handedly been in charge of leading the effort to scale the company this large. Yes. How? How did you do it? I mean, I know that's a very loaded question, but like, what is the drive? How did you get there? Tell us, how did you do it? I would say we were growing steadily every year. There was an explosion this last year and a half, and that's because there was an increase in public revenue. But Two years ago, we were about 25 million. And then the jump from 25 to 41, that was pretty great. And that's primarily because of Measure H funds coming into the county. But prior to that, growing from six to 25 million, that was really based on a strategic vision. The biggest goal was to ensure we didn't outpace ourselves and grow in a way that we wouldn't be able to sustain. So with each year of growth in our revenues, we also grew our reserves, ensuring our future stability. Okay, so here's kind of a hard question, but one that came up, and I want to be sensitive about it, but are there different classifications or categories of homeless people? How do you decide who gets to stay in one of your developments? Mm -hmm. You know, as I drive down or through downtown Los Angeles, through Skid Row, I see hundreds, if not thousands, of people on the streets. We work across a whole continuum for people experiencing homelessness in lots of different ways and for lots of different reasons. There's some people who are situationally homeless. Maybe they work an hourly job and they got cut two hours from a minimum wage job. You're talking, if you're earning $15 an hour, that's $30 a week, that's $120 a month. That could be the difference of being able to pay rent or not. The other side of the spectrum of people experiencing homelessness are our chronically homeless who have coexisting disorders. It could be mental health issues doubled with substance use disorder. It could be people with chronic physical health issues, etc. So that population, those people experiencing chronic homelessness defined by either the number of years that they've been homeless or the number of episodes of homelessness that they've experienced, that's primarily the population that we're seeing on our streets in Los Angeles. And as homelessness has grown, without there being the appropriate housing for everybody, the increase of homelessness over the years has been borne out on our streets. And it's why it feels so profound, a crisis to all of us living in every pocket of this city. And how many people currently do you guys service? So throughout the organization, from our street-based outreach to tenants in our apartment buildings to people who are living program participants living in our bridge or interim housing Mm -hmm. we're serving more than seven thousand people each year wow seven thousand people 
And if somebody comes in and say they get to live in one of your facilities, are they given some sort of a timeline, a deadline? So LA Family Housing works both in providing permanently affordable rental housing, an apartment. So you place people in actual homes so that they can live there for forever. Forever. But we also provide what we call bridge housing. Which we is the temporary side of which things. Which is temporary side okay. of things. So that's coming in. We don't use the word shelter because it really connotes for people. You wait in line outside till the bed opens at night. You come in at night and then you have to be out with all your belongings in the morning. We don't operate like that, nor have we ever, because everybody should be in a permanent home. What if you come across somebody who's just not capable of doing it on their own? There is appropriate housing for everybody. And LA Family Housing's job is to be sure we're finding the right housing intervention that's appropriate for you, that might be different than your family needs, might be different than you need individually, and might be totally different than what my family needs. So even if we don't provide every type of housing intervention, it exists, and we place you and link you to the appropriate services so that you remain stable and successful in that housing. So if you're a homeless person who is not able to have, you know, hold a job maybe because of mental illness or physical issues, um, there are options for that person as well, and you help them figure that out. Absolutely. So it's no different than a senior citizen who's on Social Security income or a veteran who's receiving veteran benefits or someone with a physical or mental health disability receiving disability income. They have some form of income and they apply that income towards their rent and then we subsidize the rest of the rent. So I just turned off the mic for a second and Stephanie corrected me and I actually really appreciated that she did that. You know, I keep saying homeless people and she corrected me to say people that are experiencing homelessness. Can you explain that? We just don't want people experiencing homelessness to be defined by a situation. As soon as you said it, I just kind of got chills and thought, yeah, that's the way it should be described. Are there enough resources for every single person that we see on the streets? We have like a 2% vacancy rate in the city of Los Angeles. That means any apartment that you want to rent, your kids are going to want to rent, I need to rent, or one of our program participants needs to rent. Doesn't matter the income level. 98% of our apartments that exist in Los Angeles are occupied by somebody. So there's just no room for them. There's just no, there's not enough housing stock. We need to build more housing. And it's why we brought to the voters last year Triple H, or that was November of 2016, to raise more capital dollars to build more buildings. And then in spring of 2017, we brought Measure H, and that's for the county to provide more services. Because you really can't have the housing without services. It's pointless to have the services if people don't have a place to live. And you really need to combine the two. And LA Family Housing has always been structured uniquely as an organization that has linked both the housing with the supportive services. And we just need to build more housing. So can you push outside of the boundaries of Los Angeles? Or are you are you limited to stay within Los Angeles? And are you guys doing that? We are. We're looking at opportunities outside of the city. Uh, we just began development with a partner in Oxnard. One of our properties is in Inglewood. We're doing work in the Antelope Valley, looking for development opportunities. So how does the funding work? Where do you get funding from? So when we build a building, it's a total public-private partnership. We leverage public resources and we bring in private capital to build a new apartment building. In terms of funding our agency and the services, that's also a combination of different government contracts, but we depend a lot on private philanthropy. And then 
as a nonprofit organization, we're very uniquely structured in that the third revenue stream is earned income. We earn an income when we build a new building. Having that diverse revenue stream really allows us to stay nimble and allows us to build to capacity. And you mentioned um, that you have multiple support services. Can you tell us about those? Our goal is not just to provide the housing, but to hope that all of our tenants and our residents remain stable and successful when they move into housing. So it could be life skills classes as much as sobriety support, linkages to mental health clinical support, or ensuring that you have an art class that helps with therapy. So in order to receive your services, um, is it just for the people who live in the bridge housing, or is it for the people who've been placed in more permanent situations as well? There's a model called permanent supportive housing. And it's targeting folks who are chronically homeless and live with coexisting disorders. Ironically, if that's the right word for this, that's exactly what I was doing 25 years ago in Atlanta, Georgia. We just didn't call it permanent supportive housing, but it was a special needs population who we knew was going to succeed in their permanent housing if we had supportive services on site. So within LA Family Housing's portfolio of 20 apartment buildings, four of them provide supportive services on site for the tenants who live there. The rest of them are really just for tenants who don't need supportive services, they just needed housing that they could afford. So there's a combination of affordable housing, permanent supportive housing, and bridge housing. And LA Family Housing sits amongst all of that. And I really encourage everyone to go onto your website and see the beautiful um, development. It's stunning. I mean, what you guys have done there is so inspiring. I mean, it's something it seems like everyone takes a lot of pride in. I think most people would be very, very proud to come home to and just be a part of. So, you know, kudos to you and your team for building that. I would go one step further and encourage people to reach out and ask if they can come on site for a tour. Yeah. Oh, do you allow that? I love bragging. Oh, sure. Fantastic. Well, I bet you a lot of people will once they hear this. And I think what they will love most about coming on site is not just seeing this beautiful asset, this architectural design. You probably can feel the spirit in the air there. Absolutely. And you'll meet our tenants and you will say, wow, this is, Emily's story is beautiful. Jamal's story is challenging and heart-wrenching, but look how great he's doing now. And just knowing the individual tenants um, from the families to single adults, it, that's what motivates every day. You touched on mental illness a few minutes ago, and my 10-year-old daughter, I started talking to her a little bit about homelessness, and, you know, we drive down the street, and sometimes she has questions, and sometimes you see someone you can tell is, you know, mentally unstable just because of the way they're acting. And she kind of stumped me with a question, and I wasn't sure how to answer her, and she said, you know, mom, are homeless people homeless because they're mentally ill or are they mentally ill because they're homeless? Mental illness is a disease. And you're born with that disease. I don't believe that homelessness causes mental illness. Got it. I think what's really scary for people, knowing that mental illness as a disease doesn't present itself until somebody's in their mid to late 20s. Right. They don't know what it is. Right. And they might be scared by these voices, and they want to start calming these voices. And that often leads to self-medicating, which often leads to substance abuse. Or we had a, a really amazing young woman, Ashley, who lived in our Palo Verde apartments. She was um, part of a population we call transition-age youth. She came out of the foster care system, and she was referred to us by a mental health 
program, she was the youngest 21-year-old I'd ever met. And when I say, I mean, really, this very young in her mind, she got kicked out of multiple foster care homes because her mental illness presented itself earlier. And it presented itself in hostility and anger and violence. And so people kicked her out of their homes, and then she was in this residential program, and from there got referred to us and moved into her own apartment. She was so proud of her apartment, and she came and presented to our board her story, and then she said, will you all come and see my home? And we went to go see her home. And mind you, this is a beautiful building, and we had the funds when we opened the building to pay for everybody's furniture and their bed. And so it was all brand linens. new, just like a dream. brand new. And, you know, we bought the stuff at Ikea, but it was so beautiful. Of like course. this kind of rich wine, satiny-looking linens and nice bath towels that matched and everything. We walked in. And it was like SpongeBob threw up all over the place. <laughs> she had crayon drawings all over her oh. walls. She had changed out all the bedding, and she had SpongeBob sheets. She was like a little eight-year-old. And it was really sweet and sad at the same time. She was also heavy. And I saw in her kitchen, I mean, she had her own home. So she had her own kitchen. Right. I saw in her kitchen probably 24 cup of noodles just stacked up. And that's all she was eating. Because she never learned to cook. She didn't have life skills. We define our services on site, particularly in our permanent supportive housing, based on what the residents need. We don't say, you all need to have this program. We let them tell us what they need. But do you check on them? Do you guys go in and kind of see see how they're doing and see what they need and follow up with with services as well? Yes. So we have full-time staff on site. Um, a mental health specialist, a recovery specialist, and a life skills coordinator. And we design our buildings in such a way that fosters natural engagement. Mm -hmm. So whether it's staff offices right across from the elevator or a staff office right next to the mailboxes and another office across from the computer lab, it's because we don't want anybody to fall through the cracks. We are here to lift them up. And you can't do that if you expect they're going to just walk downstairs, wait in front of your office for an appointment. Instead, we need to walk around and say, hey, Ashley, how's it going? Right. Really make those personal connections. Talk to us about substance abuse. I saw on the news, I think it was yesterday or the day before, that the city of Los Angeles, on the streets of Los Angeles, was doing a needle exchange program. So what are your policies around that? Well, first, when I say that you know things go around and come around, When I was in graduate school at UCLA, I participated in a needle exchange program, not on campus, but in the streets of Los Angeles, before needle exchange was legal. So I'm always happy when I know that there's been needle exchange programs that have been legalized, adopted by the public sector, funded by the public sector, because it is a critical need. Not that you ever want to encourage somebody's drug use, but you can't ignore that it's happening. Right. It's no different than... it's better to not spread disease, obviously. Correct. In terms of how LA Family Housing deals with substance use disorder, we recognize that if we required people to be clean and sober to come in and receive any services, we wouldn't be serving half of the people that we are serving. Oh, interesting. So we don't require that to come in and receive services. We clearly discourage use. We don't forbid use. What we forbid is it happening on site. We work hard to control it. You do you the can best always, you can. We do the best we can. So, Stephanie, is it true that permanent supportive housing costs less annually than living on the street? 100%. That is such a a tough thing to wrap your head around. Can you please, please explain that to everyone? We've known for years that 
it's almost half the cost annually to support somebody living in permanent supportive housing than to provide them with crisis services while they're out on the streets, whether it's the number of police calls, jail stays, hospital visits. If somebody has a permanent home, we might be spending about $22,000 a year on that individual supporting them in their home versus $44,000 a year in providing crisis services to the same individual on the streets. That, that, the, that's mind-blowing. It's half, half the price. What we always say in our industry is the cost of doing nothing is not zero. So why is there not more effort then put in? Why is there not everybody doing this? I mean, it seems like it's such an obvious choice. Why are there not more people activating like you? Look, Los Angeles had slow growth land use policies for three decades. Right. We didn't get to this problem overnight. It was a progression of not building the appropriate housing at all income levels to keep up with the population in Los Angeles. So that all of a sudden, not only are rents going up and people are losing their housing for economic reasons, but there's people who could never even get into housing because the rents are so high. Right. It's really just supply and demand. If you don't have enough housing, then the limited supply you have, you could charge as much as you want for it because right. everybody needs it. So we've just pushed people out of the market because our rents are so high because the supply is so low. The way I always say it is our housing crisis has become our homeless crisis, not the other way around. And until we start building more housing at all income levels, but with a focus on those most vulnerable in off the streets, we're not going to feel a difference. So you guys provide outreach to engage with people experiencing homelessness. Tell us how that works. There's really a gift when you see somebody walking up to an individual or to a family, whether they're in a tent, whether they're just sleeping on the sidewalk, whether they are in their car, and automatically being able to engage because there is a sense of trust. Certainly people are trained, and we do extensive training on how to engage and boundaries and those types of things. We also hire a lot of staff with lived experience. Oh, wow. And then there's just some people who are born with gifts. And when you know your gifts, you have to find the right place to use them. I know my gifts. I know some of my staff's gifts, right. and I'm in my right place, and they're in their right place. And do they ever experience walking up to somebody who's resistant, who, who's not interested in the help? Of course. And But the way we understand that at LA Family Housing, and I would say this across our industry, we recognize that somebody isn't ready for help yet. So you won't give up on that person? We will never give up on somebody. And one of the things that we need to come back when we come back is if we say we will be here tomorrow at noon, we have to honor that. Right, you have to, your you word has to, to be gold. You have to build that kind of, yeah. that trust. We have a wonderful guy that, kind of this crazy soul that was part of our LA family housing life for a number of years, and we just called him the wizard. He was called the wizard because he really didn't know his name. We think he was in his early to late 60s, clearly living with mental illness, untreated mental illness, but just a really wonderful, crazy soul. Everyone in the community knew him. The police knew him. The hospitals knew him. The business owners knew him. The kids knew him. It took a while to build that trust until the wizard finally agreed to come indoors. And he came indoors to one of our bridge housing sites. And I remember after he was there, 
for a few months, I saw his mental health counselor, and I said, Barry, how's the wizard doing? He's like, oh, he's good. He's up to three. I'm like, three what? Three consecutive nights in a row that he would stay indoors. Wow. Because when he first came indoors, he came in for one night, and then he'd go back out for six. Because it was his comfort zone? It was his comfort zone. He was on the streets for 26 years. Mm-hmm. Anyway, the wizard ultimately, those three nights in a row, became a week, became months, and then one of our permanent supportive housing properties opened, and he was prioritized to move in there. And when he moved in, just incredible pride. He was sort of this ambassador you know, to the community, and this incredible pride. And he always, whenever I was around that apartment building, Stephanie, I want to show you my home. And I'd go and see his home. I just like stopping for a moment to try to picture what that's like. You're, you're living on the streets for 26 years, and somebody approaches you and just kind of turns everything, you know, upside down. So at first, it must be incredibly scary and really unfamiliar. But, you know, you have to acclimate to it. It doesn't, it doesn't come naturally to some people that aren't used to it. So where is he now? The wizard actually passed away. Aww. And I remember by this time, we had connected with his two sisters and their adult children. And uh, my staff called me when he was in the hospital. And they called me, I think it was a Sunday late afternoon, and said, we don't think the wizard's going to make it through the night. So I went to the hospital. And my staff had met his sisters, but I hadn't. And I was actually kind of nervous to meet him that night. We met in the chapel of the hospital. They were so loving and appreciative and said, we always knew our brother would die, but we thought he would die in the streets as a John Doe and that nobody would know. And it would take weeks till somebody found us. But we knew he died part of community. And look who's here at the hospital with him. So thank you for helping our brother. It's very telling. Such a beautiful story. Stephanie, you run a giant organization, and you also balance a family and a home. And tell us, how do you handle all of the stress of all of this? How do you get through it? So I make sure that we have moments of pause as a family at home. Maybe you really saw the ocean and you were excited hearing the waves. Maybe you were just happy that, you know, the week is done. That was pretty much my son's moment of pause every Friday night. But I take that to work, too, because our work is hard. You have all of these moments, and if you don't stop and pause, you can get weighed down by the sadness of the work or the the challenges of the work. When you have 53,000 people in your county experiencing homelessness, it's hard to be excited that you opened up a 50-unit apartment building. That's too little. And I actually keep this saying um, above my desk which is you're not obligated to complete the task, but nor can you ignore it. Because the task is great, and you need to constantly see what going forward is. And sometimes forward means you need to change the way you're doing it. Because if you keep doing things the same way and you don't see a difference, right? Isn't that the definition of insanity? So I would say taking moments of pause to celebrate milestones, recognizing that some of the milestones are smaller than others, but they still have to be recognized. That's what fuels me. I think that's some really solid advice. Stephanie, you help so many people. Your job is so important. Just sitting here listening to the way you describe what you do and how passionate you are and some of the stories you tell about the individual people and how you connect. And I just, I'm just watching your face kind of light up as you're explaining it. You're truly finding success in your journey. Do you feel like you have found success? Are you there? Am I there? 
Honestly, I don't think I ever thought it would be this great. I just turned 50 last week, and I had a couple personal goals and a couple professional goals. Many of the professional goals I've reached, not all the personal ones, but I'm not done. And so what have you learned or taken away from this whole experience? Make sure you find balance and reward because the work is hard, and I have this very unique Los Angeles experience to be home every night for dinner, to walk my kids to school, and still feel like I am giving a lot to the community, despite there being more to do. I don't think I ever thought I would have both the balance and the rewards. And you need to surround yourself by people who are as committed and passionate to whatever your work is. I don't know. Life is too short. It is. It's definitely too short. Well, I think many people aspire to get to where you are right now. And so we really appreciate you coming to tell your story and enlighten us a little bit about um, how LA Family Housing works and all that you and your organization have accomplished. This is going to be a lot of new information for a lot of people. So thank you for teaching me something I didn't already know. And I'm also interested on how I can help and get involved. If people want to get involved, how do they find you? They should definitely jump on our website lafh.org and understand us but then look at how to volunteer and to be engaged with us and i know um gianna my intern would like to come and ask you a question so i'm going to have her come on over and chat with you thank you so much this has really been fun for me and i appreciate you dedicating time on your show to talk about homelessness so gianna come on over hi gianna hi stephanie so What I feel is a big problem for the younger generation with finding a career or following what they're really passionate about is going the route where they're going to make a lot of money or the route where they're going to be more selfless and do what they're passionate about or work for a cause they believe is important. So I'm just wondering what your advice would be for someone trying to make that decision on whether they want to pursue something to help others or something to only help themselves. I think the most important thing when you're choosing a career should be finding your gift and being sure you are doing what you're best at, what makes you feel not good because you are helping somebody else necessarily, but good because you're being your best self. And that, to me, you know, my kids make fun of me that I always used to sign their camps that let her be the best you. I do think that when choosing a career, People need to choose what makes them shine, what they know they're good at because they're giving what they're good at to others. You may be helping somebody along the way, but I think whether your career is in services or your career is in some other industry, even helping the people around you, being a mentor. You could be a mentor in any profession and you're going to be helping people. So, but you're not going to be inspired, I don't think, to be a mentor unless you love what you're doing. Okay, great. Thank you. This might be more of a personal reflection for you rather than a direct answer, but you run an incredibly large organization. And on top of that, your organization is helping so many people facing a very serious issue. So I just wanted to know that with all of this, not chaos, but this large quantity of responsibility, What is the one issue that keeps you up at night that you really strive to solve in the world? Well, first, I really like using the word chaos 
because I think we all live with a lot of chaos and you have to figure out how to organize chaos because you can't eliminate it. For me, I remember when I began my role at LA Family Housing and I used to think personnel issues is what's going to keep me up at night or a budget is what's going to keep me up at night. Actually, the buildings is what kept me up at night because there's people inside of them. And if, God forbid, there were a natural disaster, you know, yes, you worry about your employees, but my gosh, I felt responsible for all of our tenants and all of our residents. That really does keep me up at night, recognizing that you can't control everything, and so then you need to be sure in your organized chaos, you have a response to things you can't control. Thank you so much for being here and letting me ask you some questions. It was great to meet you. Thank Thank you. you. So Stephanie, thank you again for joining us today on She Dynasty. We are all so inspired by you. You have literally one of the most important jobs in the world. And I think we're all just going to walk away today with a new understanding of this subject. And hopefully a lot of people will take action because of it. Thank you so much.